This is Dr. Shannon M. Clark with a Dr. Delivers podcast, and today is an Ask Us Anything with OBGYN Dr. Tamika Cross. Have a listen. Okay, thanks everybody for joining us. I am Dr. Shannon Clark with Babies After 35 on Instagram and a Dr. Delivers podcast, and today I am joined by Dr. Tamika Cross, who is a board-certified OBGYN in Houston, Texas, right down the road from me. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, and you're in, is your office in Pearland? Is that where the clinic is? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm in in Pearland, and I deliver in a medical center, but yeah, my office is in Pearland. Mm -hmm. Okay, are you taking new patients? I am. We are expecting new patients. (laughs) Perfect, perfect. And uh, at the end of this, and in the caption of the video, I will put uh, Dr. Cross's Instagram information so you can look them up. Okay, so basically what we're here to do today is it ask us anything. And now we set out feelers for some questions ahead of time, and we have a list of them. And hopefully we'll have some time at the end of this discussion to go through and ask some of the questions that come through. But the first question I actually got was, what made each of you decide to go into OBGYN? So you go first. Why did you decide to do OBGYN? So it's actually funny. So when I went to medical school, I thought that I was going to end up being a pediatrician. And so um, in my second year, when we did like our preceptorships, that's when I got exposed to um, OBGYN. And I really saw that it was more than just pap smears and delivering babies. And so um, I really fell in love with the field, um, I guess, in my second year, really. And so after Mm -hmm. that, then when I did my third year clerkship, I just kind of solidified it. So I liked Mm -hmm. the versatility of the field, Um, you know, going from clinic to the hospital to surgeries and so I like that I, I'm a busybody. So yeah. I like that we can do all different types of things and then just mm-hmm. really taking care of women um, to in any capacity. So that's mm-hmm. really what drove me to the field. And I do not regret that decision today. I still <laughs> love what I do. What about you? Yeah. So for me, I actually went to med school to be a forensic pathologist. And oh. I spent a lot of time in the medical examiner's office, uh, the, state, uh, the Kentucky State Medical Examiner's Office in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, with, you know, autopsies, body dog training. And I still love the field, but I did my OBGYN rotation, the last rotation of my third year, and completely changed course. Uh, It was a little late in the game. Most people figured it out before then, but it worked out okay. Um, Got into an OBGYN residency, and then within the first couple months, I knew I wanted to do maternal fetal medicine. I had a really good uh, MFM doc I was exposed to, and I just liked the high-risk nature of it. And the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. I don't do the gynecologic part um, like Dr. Crosswood. Um, most of what I do is all, all my patients are pregnant and high risk for one reason or another. Um, do I miss the gynecology? Not one bit. <laughs> I was about to <laughs> ask you that. I was going to oh, say, do you miss the GYN? <laughs> no. And I'll tell you why. I, when I was in residency, because uh, I'm sure I was in residency way before you, uh, is when laparoscopic surgery started really becoming a thing and I hated it. I did not have the patience for it. And I was just like, there's no way I could do this because I knew it was going to be a big thing. I'm like, this is not, you know, uh, it's just solidified my decision to do only obstetrics. So (laughs) I hated laparoscopy at first too. And now I love it, but it was just frustrating because it was counterintuitive. It's like, you got to go right to go left. And then you're looking Mm -hmm. at the screen and I'm trying to operate Mm -hmm. here. But once I got Mm -hmm. the hang of it, I loved it. But yeah. That's what most people say. I think it's just was my, my I'm just an impatient person. Okay. So the next question <laughs> we're going to go to, and I'll, t- I'll tackle this one, is how can you monitor high risk for uterine rupture during pregnancy with known thin spots in the uterus? So what this question is asking is for someone who has had a previous cesarean section, 
Um, and we do ultrasounds and there may be a spot in the uterine wall that we think is thin. Um, and is there a way to monitor, um, to see if that becomes a concern and to use that to direct or guide um, uh, counseling regarding the potential for a trial of labor after cesarean because of what we see on ultrasound? And the answer is this, there have been studies, nothing show has shown that that changes anything um, because it's an ultrasound. It's not, it's not a, the best way to evaluate the uterine wall. So we do not use that uh, and monitor that, uh, the, that where that scar would be, um, which we can tell where the, you know, where the scar might be on an ultrasound on someone who's pregnant again after cesarean. We do not monitor that for thickness or use that to guide um, how we counsel a patient regarding a TOLAC. Uh, trial labor after cesarean. So I know there are places that do that. If they're doing that, it's not because there's any science out there that shows it. Um, I deal high risk. All my patients are high risk. Multiple have had cesarean sections and we do not do it. And it hasn't changed uh, our outcomes at all. What about you? Do you, uh, you know, get surveillance on any of your prior cesarean sections to see if they have a th thin segment? Mm -mm. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I do uh, a yeah, lot of I, evads, I, but I, I don't do mm -hmm, that. I, yeah, I care not, more about the op report um, than yes. anything. It's just finding yeah. that out, if mm -hmm. possible, if it's accessible. But no, mm -hmm. I don't really evaluate it. Sometimes the MFM reports, I have actually MFMs do all of my um, all my anatomy scans and okay. all my nuchals. And so, you know, sometimes they'll make mention of the scar, but I never like actually mm -hmm. use it to make um, yeah. a determination if they're a good patient or a good candidate for um, a TOLAC. Now, it, if there is a placenta previa or a low-lying placenta in someone who has had a previous cesarean section, that's a different ballgame. That's just more worrisome that there could potentially be a growth of the placenta into the previous uterine scar, especially if there's a previa, placenta previa that remains. But again, um, it's, there's no data, and there are studies on it. There's quite a few, actually, showing that there is, uh, it changes the outcomes of anybody, or we should be doing it to use it as a guidance for TOLAC. So the answer is, we don't do it. Okay. Now, now I'm just, before I move to the next question, I'll just say if you've had a prior history of a uterine rupture and retained your uterus and you were able to fix it and you're wanting to get pregnant again, my recommendation would be to have a preconception consult with a maternal fetal medicine specialist to determine a plan of care for your pregnancy uh, in consultation with your OB. Um, is that kind of how you do If you know someone that's had, you had a patient with a prior uterine rupture, just to uh, look at the operative port first and foremost, especially if that patient wasn't yours and they're coming to you with the next pregnancy uh, and then come up with a plan of care. Is that kind of how you handle it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned that because actually someone just asked that in the, the chat asking if they're mm. at risk of having another one. They had an unscarred um, uterus and had a rupture. And then mm -hmm. she said that was she at higher risk of having it again. So yeah, well, yeah. I, I, well, I have, if someone asked that, I just talk about that. So basically the stats are this. Um, so this is kind of what, I drew this beforehand. If you can see this, this would be the cervix. I love it. This is the uterus. And this is where majority of cesarean scars or, or incisions are made is in the lower uterine segment. The reason why is because that's a thinner segment, um, especially in someone that's been laboring, but even in someone that's not. Up here is the thicker, more muscular part of the uterus, and that's called the active segment. So if the uterine scar stays in that part and, you know, that's it. You know, we have, and it's called a low transverse cesarean scar. The risk of uterine rupture, the most recent data says, is about if you were to try, try do a trial of labor after cesarean, is about 6%. Then if we get the op report and we see that it was extended up into the active segment, or there was a prior classical. The classical means the entire incision was done 
in the active segment, that is, you cannot do a trial labor because the, use, the risk of uterine rupture is too high. Um, now, sometimes you'll get an operative report and they'll say there was an extension into the active segment or there was a J incision, which means that it was like this and up and down or a T, inverted T incision. You know, all of that's gonna guide you uh, as to how uh, to counsel about the possibility of a TOLAC and the risk of rupture. But basically anything that goes into the active segment is an increased risk for uterine rupture. Um, and the repeat rupture rate is as high as 32%, but somewhere between 15 to 32% if that incision is a classical incision or extended up into the active segment. So, you know, it's very important to know, um, uh, especially if you're going to a doctor for the first time and you've had a cesarean with someone else that we get those operative reports so that we have that information to help guide you. Yeah, operative reports are always good. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of times, you know, like patients don't really know. Um, and yeah. I think that when it comes down to it, like, you know, a lot of times they're just looking at the scar on the skin. So they're like, oh yeah, the yes. scar on my skin is side to side. So they went side to side and I'm like, yeah. no, the scar on no, your skin like, may be mm -hmm. completely different than mm -hmm. the scar on your uterus. So mm -hmm. we need the actual operative report. Nobody yes. just wakes yeah. up like later on and says, hey, well, I know I had this kind of, unless your doctor actually sat you down and talked to you and about told it. You, hey, yeah. mm -hmm. Exactly. And that doesn't happen routinely in an uncomplicated yeah. delivery. A lot of my patients actually come from Mexico and they routinely do up and down scars on the skin. Uh, that's just how they do it. And then I'll have a patient that comes in with an up and down scar on the skin. The same can be said. You can't assume because the skin is up and down, you know, vertical on the skin that the same thing is on the uterus. And so then what, and it comes to that. And a lot of times I can't get records um, because it's another country. So then I talk to them, well, what was the situation for your cesarean? What was the reason? And I can kind of deduce from that as to whether or not I think the incision was up and down on the uterus or side to side, but sometimes it takes a little digging. Um, mm -hmm. but that's kind of what we're here for, especially for those people who, you know, come from other practices or other countries having had cesareans and we don't have access to those notes. Um, okay. Next question is for you. Why are pap smears recommended every three years for, uh, persons 40 plus instead of yearly while mammos are expected annually? That's a good question. I actually get asked that a lot because, you know, uh, we used to do pap smears annually, uh, which the guidelines changed quite a while ago, but some mm -hmm. people are still doing them annually. And so I think it just causes a little confusion, yeah, confusion as yeah. far as like, you know, how we're practicing versus evidence-based um, and following the guidelines. Um, so the guidelines actually are that when you're, that you start pap smears at 21, regardless of, you know, being a virgin, any sexual history or not, we start at 21. And um, you should be having a pelvic exam every year where they put a speculum in your vagina, look at your cervix every single year. But um, an actual pap smear where we're swabbing for cells, looking for precancerous or cancerous cells, that under the age of 30 is every three years. And so um, that's, that's the recommendation currently. And then after 30, well, 30 and up, it's recommended every five years with co-testing, which means we're testing for HPV at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, if for some reason someone did not do co-testing, which is the recommended, um, you know, recommended um, management, then um, it could be every three years without co-testing after the age of 30. So that's the, that's the recommendation currently. Why is that? So a lot of patients are just like, well, I'm nervous, just do it every year. And honestly, I haven't had really an issue with insurance not covering it um, every year. And if I don't have a patient's records, I always get at least a baseline one on mm. file. But um, the recommendation changed because what we found is that we were over treating things mm. that would spontaneously go away anyway. Yep. So for example, if we know that someone, you know, we do a pap smear and it comes back 
ASCIS and HPV positive, um, atypical cells, um, then basically we end up doing a colposcopy, which is a procedure looking with a special type of microscope at your cervix. We end up doing that. We end up doing biopsies, sometimes a leap if it ends up being a higher grade lesion. And really, a lot of these go away on their own within mm -hmm. 12 to 24 months. So what they recommended is, you know, kind of falling back because the more we do, just with everything in medicine, mm -hmm. the more we put our hands in things, the more interventions that we're doing that may not even be necessary. But that's why it's also important that even though we're spacing out pap smears, you're still going in for your annual well woman so someone can be looking because if you see a lesion that looks abnormal or if I see like a mass growing, well, of course, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to say, well, wait for three years. Mm -hmm. So um, that's why the recommendations changed. And so I just really, um, I'm big on educating people about that. because mm -hmm. So many patients are nervous mm -hmm. about, well, my whole life, I've been getting them every year. Why mm -hmm. are you telling me I don't need one now? Right. And the whole thing with the mammal, I mean, breast cancer and cervical cancer are two very different things. With increasing age, you're, you are at increased risk for breast cancer. That's not necessarily true in someone who's had no HPV or no other risk factors for cervical cancer. So you can't really compare the two. So that's why, right, pretty much why the recommendations are different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And mm -hmm. actually it depends on who you're, for breast cancer, it depends on who, like what society you're looking at. If you're looking at yeah. American mm -hmm. Cancer Society, if you're looking at ACOG, American College yeah. of OBGYNs, if you're looking at, you know, um, the Family Medicine, the U.S. Preventative Task Force, um, if you're looking at all these different ones, they have diff different recommendations. Some say annual to a certain age and then every two years, um, I'm sorry, vice versa, every two years and then annually yeah. later. And then some of them say annually all the time. I personally follow ATI recommendations and yeah. I do a mammogram every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then that also might change depending on, like Dr. Cross said, your family history and other things. And um, if you want to go back, I recently did a, a live discussion with Dr. Anjali Malik, who's a breast radiologist, where we went over this. And we well, talked about the guidelines. So go back into my Instagram live and look at that if you have more questions about mammograms and why we do it, how we do it. Okay. Oh, oh, who should write the order for the mammogram? My PCP or my OBGYN? Either or. Either or can write it. Um, I personally like um, doing it myself, so I have the record, but the PCP probably wants to do it too. But I like doing it because it also reminds people to come in for their well woman and get everything done at one time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, first, we, uh, as we were, I was just talking to someone about this the other day. Everyone needs a primary care physician whether that's a family medicine per person or internal medicine, they're the same, but different in some ways. So, uh, you know, someone needs to be your primary uh, um, health care provider. And if you're in the reproductive age, you're going through pregnancy, that person can be transitioned to your OBGYN. But as far as the writing the mammogram, um, if you're seeing your OBGYN routinely, um, that's, that report's going to go to that OBGYN. So I know a lot of OBGYNs would prefer to write and kind of be the gatekeeper of that type of stuff, but you know, mm -hmm. a PCP can write it just as, just as fine. Mm -hmm. Um, there might just be, say, if something's abnormal, there might be another step that has to be taken to get it to your OBGYN to manage it further. So, but it's kind of up to you how you want to handle it. Okay. Next question. What is the likelihood of having recurrent large subchorionic hemorrhage in subsequent pregnancies? Um, let's see, this, pay, this person is saying they had a small one in the second pregnancy that resolved, no issues. Then a big one in the third pregnancy um, that caused large hemorrhages, multiple other subchorionic hemorrhages to occur. Then they ended up doing, having preterm premature rupture of membranes, um, and then chronic abruption. The son was born at 28 and 4, um, was in the NICU for 204 days, but then passed away uh, from pulmonary hypoplasia and chronic lung disease. Um, 
is having a retained placenta in the previous pregnancy the risk factor for de developing subcranial hemorrhage? The answer to that question is, is no. Having a retained placenta is not going to increase your risk of having a subchorionic hemorrhage. But let's just talk a little bit about subchorionic hemorrhage. So you think of the uterus and the amniotic sac. The amniotic sac is actually composed of two membranes, the chorion and the amnion. And then you think of the placenta. If it, the, the uterus is like a balloon. You have two layers inside. The wall, wall of the balloon is the uterine wall. Then inside you have two layers, the chorion and the amnion. And the placenta is somewhere in that top part of the balloon. You can get a subchorionic hemorrhage, hemorrhage under the chorion, which is one of the layers of the amnion and the chorion that kind of keep the amniotic fluid in this gestational sac together. It's called a subchorionic hemorrhage if it's less than 20 weeks, uh, and we see them a lot. Now, when is, does it become a concern? And I have some stats here. Uh, and also I want to say subchorionic hemorrhage, especially in before 20 weeks, the patient may or may not ever have any vaginal bleeding. A lot of times if they're small, they'll resorb on their own and the patient doesn't even know and only knows because they had an ultrasound and nothing ever happens. That's most cases. Um, and that means it's asymptomatic and it just goes away on its own. Um, okay, so in early pregnancy, so a subcranic hemorrhage is considered small if it's less than 20% of the size of the gestational sac. It's medium if it's 20 to 50% and large if it's 50, greater than 50 to 66% of the gestational sac. Um, and then there's something where you estimate the volume and all that, but that doesn't really, I mean, that's imprecise. Um, we just kind of categorize them by large, medium, uh, sorry, small, medium, or large. The larger they are, the more likely they are to cause future issues and potentially cause chronic abruption after 20 weeks and cause preterm labor and cause PPROM and cause vaginal bleeding. So the larger subcarionic hemorrhages that don't go away are like more likely to be the ones that go on to progress past 20 weeks and then become the chronic abruption. When you hear about abruption though, placental abruption, um, more, more likely it's referred to in a case where there's an onset of sudden, a sudden vaginal bleeding, the placenta starting to tear, it becomes an acute situation. And sometimes it can lead to uh, loss of pregnancy or preterm delivery because you're bleeding, abrupting. And that's what happened to me with my twins. It was 31 weeks and the placenta was tearing away. Um, mm -hmm. But the chronic abruption can happen in a situation I just described earlier. And I have a lot of those patients. Uh, some had some chorionic hemorrhages diagnosed earlier and some didn't. For whatever reason, a tear occurs behind the placenta and it bleeds a little bit at a time. And it might bleed and then stop, bleed and then stop. Sometimes we can see evidence of it on ultrasound, sometimes we can't. Then sometimes they end up breaking their bag of water, then they end up getting delivered. So that's kind of the natural history of a chronic abruption. Um, but a lot of times the fetus can survive, you know, stay in, in, in utero, meaning inside the uterus for a long period of time, depending on how much bleeding they're, they're having. But every person's different. Every pregnancy is different. Mm -hmm. The biggest risk factor for abruption is a previous abruption in a prior pregnancy. We don't really know why that is, but it can happen again. Um, so I hope that answers your question. I know it's a lot of information there, but just keep in mind that subchorionic hemorrhage and abruption are kind of two different things. And one does not necessarily lead to the other other than a larger subchorionic hemorrhage can lead to an abruption that we do know. Does that make sense at all, Dr. Cross? <laughs> yeah, no, I think yeah. that was extremely thorough. Yeah. And yeah. it's a great topic because I see it all the time um, when patients go in for, yeah. I don't know, like status post, like MBA, like a, um, a motor vehicle accident mm -hmm. or something like that. And they end up with a radiology ultrasound and almost mm -hmm. all of them, they write it on there and then mm -hmm. the patients freak out freak and they out. come to my office like, freak my out, placenta's yeah. bleeding and, you know, and most of them go away. <laughs> yeah, and it's just the subchronic hemorrhage. I really don't even worry about it until it's really, really big. And sometimes the patient's having spotting too. Then you know 
especially at less than 20 weeks or even in the first trimester that there might, there's definitely an increased risk of that leading to miscarriage. But again, that's in the minority um, of patients. Um, okay, let's go to the next topic. Let's see. This is for you. I have been diagnosed with a hiatal hernia. It's a small one, never been pregnant. I just want to know, would it be wise for me to get pregnant? And what is the, what, is, what can I guess as far as the outcome of the pregnancy might be on the hiatal yeah. hernia? So that's, that's a good question. So um, we do see a lot of hernias in pregnancy, not necessarily, um, well, a hiatal hernia can either be diagnosed like earlier on, like in childhood, or it can be diagnosed like later on, like in pregnancy. But definitely, it's not a reason why you can't get pregnant. But at the same time, you know, some of your symptoms potentially could be exacerbated. Yeah, because now, you know, already just without having the hernia, um, you know, you're increasing your abdominal um, contents, right? So your uterus mm -hmm. getting big, baby's getting big. And so it's already kind of pushing contents up into like the mediastinum. Um, mm -hmm. or towards that direction. So if you have a hiatal er hernia, um, I guess to explain to everybody what that is, yeah. um, it's basically like a hernia um, or like a, basically it's in the diaphragm and essentially mm -hmm. some of your contents are kind of um, like sliding up into the cavity. So like you right under, well, you can't really see if I'm sitting here, <laughs> but like you're, you're right under your lungs, like you have your diaphragm and that kind of is separating those two different cavities. And so if you have like, you know, where your esophagus and everything is going into the um, abdominal cavity, things can potentially slide and push into the mediastinum when you have this hernia. So pregnancy, anything that's going to increase um, even obesity, but anything that's going to increase that abdominal um, pressure, pressure could, yeah. could potentially push it more into the mediastinum. So you could definitely have um, more significant um, symptoms in pregnancy, mm -hmm. more hyperemesis in the first yeah. trimester, things like that. But it wouldn't be, um, at least from my opinion, I, I wouldn't say that's a reason to not get pregnant because um, there's a lot of pregnant women that have them and don't even know that they have it until yeah. they're pregnant. But I don't mm -hmm. think that would be a contraindication for getting pregnant. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Would you think that that would be a yeah. reason to? No, if it's a, a high yield hernia that's diagnosed before pregnancy and it's controlled, it's not something that needs to be operated on and may or may not be on some kind of proton pump inhibitor or something to decrease the acid. So especially because the hiatal hernias, hernias are associated with reflux. Um, and as long as that's okay, there's no reason to get pregnant. With the knowledge that your reflux might get worse, um, the, the hiatal hernia may not necessarily get worse. Um, but like you said, you could have, be at increased risk for having more severe symptoms of nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. So knowing all that is, is important and just being prepared for that. And if I knew, had somebody who I knew had um, a hiatal hernia and was on medication, I would make sure I would have them continue with seeing GI throughout the course of the pregnancy, just mm -hmm. to have them on board um, to manage in case symptoms got worse. But is that a reason to not get pregnant? No, it's not. Yeah. Not okay. Yeah. All right. Now this is a, a really good topic. The arrived trial and mm -hmm. induction of labor at 39 weeks. Okay, mm -hmm. so I, I took some notes because I wanted to spell this out in a very cohesive manner because I didn't want to go on a tangent. So basically the question was, um, and I hear this a lot, that being, getting induced at 39 weeks is being highly recommended and encouraged and pushed based on advanced maternal age alone. I just actually wrote a paper on this with my resident and it's coming out, it's actually gonna be a CNE article so mm, as soon as that comes out, I'm going to talk about it. So, um, but I'll give you a little snippet. So let's talk about history. So historically, an elective induction of labor. What does that mean? 
induction of labor, meaning we bring you in and we start the labor process electively, meaning there's no medical indication, no maternal or fetal reason to start the induction of labor process. It's an elective induction. So it used to be considered that it was harmful. We should not be doing it because it's going to increase your risk of cesarean section. That's how I was trained way back when. Um, and that it could be, you know, with the cesarean section and increasing that risk and causing more maternal morbidity, mortality, sorry, morbidity. Um, but we've learned since then that that's not necessarily the case. We now know that inducing labor after 39 weeks does not increase the risk of cesarean. And one of the main trials was the ARRIVE trial, and my center was part of the centers in this trial. Um, we did, so it was basically a randomized controlled trial. Uh, with comparing elective induction of labor at 39 weeks with expected management among low risk, it's called nulliparous pregnant patients, which means they've never been pregnant before. Nulliparous means first pregnancy. So basically it compared uh, induction of labor electively at 39 weeks versus expected management. And this was published in 2018. Um, the main thing they were looking at was, was the, whether or not there was increased ra rate of cesarean delivery in either groups. Um, but what they found that the, the, the rate of cesarean delivery was significantly lower in the induction of labor group than those who were expectantly managed past 39 weeks. They also found that the rate and risk of gestational hypertension and preeclampsia was lower in the induction of labor group at 39 weeks, um, as well as the need for neonatal respiratory support within the first 72 hours. So based on these results, the authors of the paper in 2018, which was a multi-center trial, actually, it was through the MFMU network, um, they aimed at the avoidance, uh, uh, so they suggested that policies aimed at the avoidance of elective labor induction among low-risk nulliparous, meaning first-time uh, pregnant patients, at 39 weeks are unlikely to reduce the rates of cesarean delivery on a population level, which was a huge finding because we mm -hmm. had traditionally been taught that you induce labor, you're, you're going to end up in a C-section, and that is simply not true, okay? And also based on the findings, they felt that it was reasonable, and actually ACOG has supported this that OBGYNs can offer elective induction to low, uh, of labor at 39 weeks to low-risk nulliparous pregnant individuals um, because it doesn't have uh, an increased risk of uh, cesarean delivery and does not increase your risk of having adverse neonatal or maternal outcomes. And it also decreases your risk of cesarean delivery and gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. Um, so what do we do with that? Now, this study is about low-risk nulliparous first-time patients at 39 weeks, but it kind of got extrapolated to everybody. Mm -hmm. At my center, we offer everyone an elect elective induction of labor at 39 weeks because my patients come from far away, and we offer that to them. Do they have to do it? No, they do not. But the general recommendation is if you start going past 39 weeks and you start hitting that 41-week mark, getting into the post-term, post-dates type pregnancy, then you might need to reconsider um, and maybe do some sur surveillance because the risk of stillbirth does start to increase every week after 40 weeks, okay? So that's something you need to discuss. This trial is not saying everybody needs to be induced at 39 weeks, nor is there any evidence that based on age alone that anyone has to be induced at 39 weeks. Now, if you're 39 and you're gestational hypertensive, diabetic, and you start what I call how I teach residents, the red flags. I start lining up the red flags. How many do they got? If it's just age alone, um, do I offer my patients that are 35 and above elective induction at 39 weeks? But I do, yes, but that's because I offer everybody that. Mm -hmm. But it's not because of their age alone. Okay, so I hear that a lot. You probably do too. Mm -hmm. um, now, in my advanced maternal age patients, especially those over 40, do I start to get nervous after 40 weeks? I do. Mm 
because then you are starting to increase the risk of potential stillbirth. And I will say, you know what, if you don't want to do 39 weeks, I'll give you to 40 and let's reassess and make a decision because I, I really start to get nervous. And that's just me personally mm -hmm. after 40 weeks. How do you handle those types of those patients as far as especially those that are AMA and that's their only risk factor? Yeah, so I, um, like you, um, very familiar with the ARRIVE trial. It was going on when I was in residency at UT. So um, definitely, I am an advocate for um, offering induction at 39 weeks to all patients. Um, if they say they don't want it, which I do have like a subset of patients that are like, no, I don't want to be induced. That's fine. I tell them the data, let them make the decision and counsel them further. When it comes to AMA, I, because um, it's recommended um, anyway, and even if it's a multip, you know, I do offer 39 week inductions for multiparous women. Mm -hmm. um, however, if they decide not to, I'm okay with that. Um, now going past 40 weeks um, and 41 and I've had some patients that I'm like okay now this is making me anxious you know that's mm -hmm. when you know we start talking yeah. about doing antenatal testing and I actually ended yeah. up getting like an NST machine here to be able to do that because I do yeah. have some patients that you know a little bit more granola and they, they'll mm -hmm. go to 42 weeks if they could mm -hmm. so um, but yes I do I do offer that for everyone but if it's just AMA alone and they don't want it I don't force it among anyone but I do let mm -hmm. them know you know, um, that I do want to kind of monitor them a little bit closely. I'm seeing them weekly at that point yeah. anyway. So mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. But I, yeah, I also have more patients now. I feel mm -hmm. like though in private practice and when I was an academic, more patients now that are like, I don't want to be induced. Mm -hmm. Like I just want it to happen naturally. And, mm -hmm. you know, even if they're 41 weeks and their service is closed, they can hide. They're just like, let's ride it out. And I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm on the opposite of the spectrum. Most of our patients want to be induced and that's perfectly fine. But again, where our patients are coming from, a lot of them live far away and it's, it's just more of a peace of mind for them. Um, that's mm -hmm. just because of my patient population. But yeah, I offer, and all of us offer in my system, elective induction at 39 weeks. They do not have to do it. If there's no other risk factors, no other complications, basically to summarize, Telling someone they have to be delivered at 39 weeks based on age alone is not a recommendation. Um, as long as everything else is okay, that's fine. But for me personally, I, especially as you're approaching the age 40 and above, I really want to get you delivered by 40 weeks. Um, and that's usually, you know, I think how most people are doing, but you'll see it when I, the paper gets published. <laughs> a little bit more recommendation there. Okay, here is one for you. Why isn't there more attention on postpartum care? We should have routine pelvic floor PT, physical therapy, behavioral health therapy, nutritional counseling. What are your views on the needs of postpartum care for new parents? I think that's a good, um, a good point and a good question. I definitely agree. There's not a lot of, you know, we always focus on the antepartum and then delivery. Um, and then like after they deliver the baby, you know, we see them in four to six weeks and then it's over. But I do think it's important to focus on those things. Uh, when it comes to like pelvic floor PT, I know in my office, we have somebody, um, we have a, actually a couple of people that we refer to regularly because it is important. And um, it's something that, you know, if it's not addressed earlier on, it definitely, I see a lot more patients coming back later on, you know, years mm -hmm. later with different, different issues as a result. So starting earlier than later, I think is definitely important. So I agree with that. Um, nutritional counseling too. So, you mm -hmm. know, we're focused on like, even if you got through the pregnancy, you don't have diabetes, you don't have, you know, anything from that standpoint, your weight gain was appropriate, you lost it, et cetera that's really important because what you typically see, um, and you probably see this with your patients too, the trend, you know, you have one kid, you gain weight, 
you lose a little bit and then you have another kid and then it just mm -hmm. starts to pile up. And so mm -hmm. you see over yeah. the course of three pregnancies, they've gained, you know, 60 pounds. Yep. So um, that is, that is important. And so it is, it is important for us to focus on the nutritional aspects of that. So I think that that's good. I think sometimes just the way that um, our healthcare system is set up yeah. um, when it comes to insurance, Medicaid, yes. things like that, that cut off right at the, mm -hmm. like the six weeks um, mm -hmm. mark essentially, or like the month right after they deliver, um, that sometimes can be problematic because then patients don't actually have appointments anymore that is covered. So I think that's more mm -hmm. of a systemic issue that needs to be yeah, fixed. Yeah. But I yeah, think it's yeah. definitely something worth, um, you know, mentioning for sure. Yeah. So, you know, if you have private payer insurance, getting the pelvic floor PT, although a lot of the pelvic floor PTs are self-pay, but there are some that will accept insurance. Uh, and I've talked about this in a previous live discussion, um, and you can go back and look at that. Um, but there's a reason why they're self-pay. Anybody can go. You don't need a referral. Um, but if you're going through your insurance, you may need to. depends on what your insurance is. The Pelicor PT, you know, do I see it happening anytime in the near future for those who are unfunded that are on Medicaid? No, I don't. That's not going to be a priority. Maybe sometime in the future, yes. But a lot of our births are, on, are to patients who are unfunded on Medicaid or uh, undocumented immigrants in this country. And that's, that's what it is. Now, the same thing goes for behavioral health and nutritional counseling. If you have private parent insurance, you are more likely, if that's what you want and you, you need a referral, you can get that. The same is not going to be said for those who are unfunded and are going to lose their Medicaid uh, or their CHIP, whatever it's called in your state. Mm -hmm. um, now, what we, and this is kind of going off on a tangent a little bit, with the maternal mortality being what it is in the U United States, what the country and some states specifically focused on were the bundles that focused on the immediate uh, intrapartum and postpartum period to decrease the risk of maternal mortality. And they implemented all these bundles to help reduce that. And what they found is it's not really helping because the problem is up to a year and the health in between pregnancies and going into the next pregnancy already not in the optimal health and to having chronic hypertension and diabetes. So those bundles we developed to help where they thought was going to change things didn't really change things. We know now and we know better that that's why we're getting the call to extend Medicaid for a year postpartum and those that don't have mm -hmm. uh, private payer insurance because of all the things that Dr. Cross just said. Um, so we are learning and we have the data that the postpartum period does not stop at six, six weeks. Uh, individuals are still at increased risk up to a year postpartum for various reasons, especially in minorities and, and women of color, patients of color, because it, 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 we, there are significant health disparities for numerous reasons and I've, I've touched on that on my platform in various various ways but there is going to be a discrepancy there based on what kind of insurance you have unfortunately mm -hmm. hopefully things are going to change and medicaid will be more receptive receptive to doing the postpartum behavioral health the postpartum nutrition counseling the postpartum physical therapy counseling what are your thoughts on that i know i just said a mouthful but you know it kind of helps to kind of set you know that's my my, my 80, was it 91% of my patients are on Medicaid or mm -hmm. are undocumented immigrants. So this is what my patients are and what I uh, deliver every day. So I kind of know a little bit <laughs> the, the challenges with Medicaid. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And I, you know, yeah. I trained um, at LBJ or the county system. Oh, yeah. And so I, I'm familiar with um, that patient population too. And I mm -hmm. definitely think that those are all important points. Um, and then I think, you know, like, let's not ignore the fact, like, the pandemic and the, the yes, weight that yes. that's had on these things, too, from a nutritional standpoint, mm -hmm. from um, a behavioral um, standpoint, 
postpartum depression rates are, you know, off the charts. And so I, I do think it's important to be able to have those resources that just have not been available to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and sometimes, you know, the people who need it the most are the ones that don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. So, yeah. I, I do think it's a problem. I do think that um, we need to be seeing patients back at an earlier interval postpartum as well, which there's been papers written about that too, instead of the routine six weeks, you know, bringing them back in earlier to kind of try to close that gap and try to, especially for patients that are on Medicaid, to try to get as much in, whether you're talking about contraception, whether you're yeah. doing their depression scale earlier, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So you can act sooner and get them at least something to bridge the gap until they have coverage again. So I think these are all important points for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Next question is a third dose of the COVID vaccine necessary six months after the second dose. Okay. So why do we, why are we recommending the booster in pregnancy? Um, it's for anyone, everyone else. Uh, we have found that pregnant individuals uh, respond to the, and we're talking mainly about the two dose series of an mRNA vaccine, which would be Pfizer or Moderna, Moderna respond immunologically similar to non-pregnant individuals. Um, so everybody has traditionally said that being pregnant is immunocompromised state. Well, when it has come to the studies for this particular vaccine, they're not considered immunocompromised. What pregnant individuals are considered are are at higher risk for severe illness, death, hospitalization, uh, needing respiratory support, ECMO. So severe illness. But when the booster recommendations came out for those that were immunocompromised, Pregnant individuals were not included because they're not considered immunocompromised for that reason, because studies are showing they're responding similarly, similarly after the two-dose series, immunologically, their response is similar to those that are non-pregnant. What we know is that with all of these COVID vaccines, um, the, uh, the, um, it, they wait, their protection wanes over time. And, you know, this is something that's been going on with, you know, all the post-market surveillance studies that we've done in pregnancy. Um, showing that the, the similar response, you know, waning of the immunity over time is similar to those in not pregnant individuals. That's why the booster is recommended. Uh, it came out being recommended by the FDA. It was approved and backed by the ACIP, which is through the CDC. SMFM and, C- and uh, ACOG have since endorsed it. And I've talked ex- extensively on here about the booster in pregnancy. So that's why the booster is recommended six months after the second dose or two months after the one dose of the J&J to help boost your immunity. We are in a pandemic, two, almost two years later. I have never been in a pandemic in my lifetime. I'm sure Dr. Cross has not been in a pandemic in our lifetime. This is a first time for all of us, and we have to protect, especially our pregnant individuals. We just had the Delta, Delta wave. I don't know how you guys are doing, but we're kind of at a lull right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's going to be another wave. There probably will be at some point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to keep our individuals protected. How do we know it's safe? We know that vaccines act like other vaccines. We have uh, tons of data on the Tdap, tons of data on the flu vaccine and pregnancy. Vaccines are vaccines. They're not taking medications systemically like you would do like an oral medication for seizure. So you can't compare the two. Vaccines are vaccines and they function and act differently. So getting long-term effects or data, which everybody uses, is not in years, okay? It's in weeks as far as long-term effects. And the vaccine components do not cross the placenta. The antibodies do. So that's how we know that it's safe because we know how vaccines work. So do I recommend the booster in pregnancy? Absolutely. I don't have a recommendation as to when to get it. What has been shown, and this is not with the booster yet because we haven't had enough patients get the booster yet, but with the second dose, 
the most remote, remote from delivery that you get that second do, dose, the more antibodies are generated. That's, that, that makes sense. And most mm -hmm. of those studies were done in early versus late third trimester of pregnancy. We're getting more data earlier on. So the more time you have to build up those antibodies is, the be is better. So I just say, get it when you can, because first and foremost, we want to protect you. The primary reason to get vaccinated is not to give antibodies to the baby. It's not. It's to protect you. Because if you're not protected, the baby's not protected. Mm -hmm. How do you talk to your patients about that? Yeah, I mean, I have definitely a lot of patients asking about that now. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I would say if I had to give like a percentage, about half and half are vaccinated yeah. um, when it comes to pregnant women. Um more and more, I will say now at this point, because we're so deep, we're so much yeah. deeper into the pandemic, that more of my pregnant patients are comfortable getting vaccinated. Um, but a lot of them are getting vac vaccinated like in the pregnancy. So they actually aren't even uh, at the point of needing the booster or being at that point yet. Because um, yeah. if they yeah. just got vaccinated like last week, yeah. or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think um, that's the way that I'm seeing with my patients is that more of them are getting vaccinated in pregnancy. And so depending on when it is in pregnancy, they're not actually going to end up getting the, the booster. But right. um, they have asked me that. Um, and yeah, I definitely encourage it. I'm like, you know, this pandemic, we said it was, we thought it was going to be this amount of time and this amount of time. And here we are. And we're still dealing with mm -hmm. it. And even though the numbers are lower, we've seen the waves come. We saw the wave yeah. coming back in the summertime. Holidays are coming. People are traveling mm -hmm. more. People are doing more. So it's like, you know, you, you never know what's going to come mm -hmm. up in the future. So um, mm -hmm. definitely just talk about it. I think first and foremost, make sure you're talking to a reputable source, talk to your physician about it and really be comfortable. But I think it's just getting patients to be comfortable with it has been the biggest um, challenge in pregnancy. Yeah, we're, we're even giving vaccines uh, after patients deliver, we're offering it to them, uh, those who haven't had it. And we're having a huge uptake of that, which is great. Um, so at least they're getting vaccinated in a postpartum period before d discharge. Uh, and, uh, we had, you know, are really educated and talked about to my postpartum rounding residents, you know, we got, this is part of their routine discharge. So we got to talk to them about it and they're getting there. So, okay. Next question is for you. And you kind of touched on this earlier. Are pap smears recommended for age 21 plus, even if the patient has never been sexually active? So this, so talk about, well, talk about why did it change to 21 plus? Because I know it used to be when I trained anybody that had sex, whether you're 12, 13, 14, you started getting pap smears. And then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, over time it changed to 21 plus. Why did that change occur? And then answer the part, the question, um, are you, is it recommended for 21 plus, even if you're not sexually active or if it had never been? Okay. So um, in reverse order to answer your question, yeah. yes, 21 is recommended regardless of your sexual status. It's recommended 100% across the board. Um, why did that change um, from, like you said before, is whenever you started having sex, regardless of the age, then it moved to 18, then it moved to 21. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason being is because um, young people like immune systems and things like that are so much stronger that like, yes, you may have an abnormal pap today, but the likelihood of it actually being persistent and causing um, like it causing it to progress is slim. Um, I'm not going to say to none, but it's, it's a lot yeah. slimmer in that age group. And so what they found is that patients in this age group, you know, they fare pretty well and you do all these, you know, excessive, like, you know, you're doing leaps and things mm -hmm. like that on, you know, these 17 year old patients, which yeah. there are side effects, you know, when they become pregnant, mm -hmm. potentially um, side effects. And so it was just unnecessary. So that's why the age yeah. has kind of moved because we were over treating um, and yes. managing with more invasive procedures that just is not needed, especially in that age group. 
But yes, it is recommended to get um, to get a pap smear at 21, even if you've never been sexually active. I have patients asking that every day. Um, and it is. And while we know that, you know, most cervical cancers are caused from HPV, HPV is sexually transmitted. So a lot of times people think, well, if I'm not having sex, I don't have HPV, so I can't have cervical cancer or dysplasia. However, um, you know, it's not 100%. Um, it's not 100% mm-hmm. that it's caused by HPV, but it, it is in the, the mid-90s um, percentage-wise. But also, you know, people don't really think about, like, contact. And even though you're not having maybe sexual intercourse, maybe any kind of sexual activity, Mm skin-to-skin contact, things like that, that it could potentially be transmitted. So it's recommended to get it regardless. And I have patients that Mm -hmm. would debate me up and down at 30 that have never had a pap. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, we're doing it. (laughs) We're Mm -hmm. doing it today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember I I did residency 2000-2004, and we would have the LEAP clinics on teens young as 13, 14, doing leaps on their service. And now we didn't know what we know now about HPV and that even if you have HPV at that younger age, you're more likely to clear it. But that, you know, a lot of this came by what our knowledge of HPV has evolved over time and what we know about that. And that someone in that age group is more likely to clear it. We don't need to go start hacking on their cervixes and do cones and leaps and cause potential issues for them in their future, reproductive future. Um, And that's why we pushed up uh, the recommendation of 21 which is a a great uh, change. Uh, And since Mm -hmm. doing that, we're not seeing that we're missing a bunch of cervical cancers in in those that are Mm -hmm. under 21. So that definitely has been a change for the better. And I I still think about when I was doing the late clinics and how many teens I was doing, but that's what we thought we were supposed to do. But thank Mm -hmm. goodness we got the knowledge that we have uh, on HPV and that that is no longer done. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Okay. Here's a good question. I'm nine weeks postpartum and I cannot feel, wait, feel my bladder feel and I can't feel the need to pee. My doc says this is normal and to wait three months, will this resolve? I'm going to give my opinion. You can give yours. It's not normal that far out to not be able to feel, uh, you know, the, the urge to pee. I'm not sure how many deliveries you've had, but there's definitely some pelvic floor dysfunction going on there and that cannot be ignored. This, this, trend or thing that we have of telling pregnant it's okay to go pee on yourself it'll resolve at three months there's no magic number at three months so why do you think that it's going to magically go away if someone's peeing on their self a month later that's a problem mm-hmm. okay that should not be happening so they need to either be evaluated um go to an fpmrs which is a pelvic a pel- a female pelvic medicine reconstructive surgeon or a pelvic floor pt to do some exercise because it's a pel- probably a pelvic floor issue if it's mm-hmm. that you know close to delivery um, what, what are your thoughts on that? I agree. I definitely wouldn't wait. Um, I wouldn't wait. I would definitely seek, um, yeah. you know, seek evaluation with a specialist immediately because that's not normal. And a lot of times, like you said, we blow off things. Oh, it'll, it'll resolve. It'll resolve. And we don't know that. And sometimes, you know, a lot of different medical things, especially with um, something like this, the earlier you intervene, the less likely you're going to have like more um, severe sequelae down the road. So mm-hmm. I definitely recommend um, going ahead and getting evaluated by pelvic floor PT. One of the reasons why we're having such bad outcomes on with maternal morbidity and mortality in this country is the culture of, oh, it's just, you're just pregnant. Oh, you're just postpartum. Mm-hmm. It'll go away. We got to stop doing that because it's harming our patients and it's, it's taking an easy way out. Not everything a pregnant person experiences is because of the pregnancy. Not everything a, a, a postpartum person experiences is because of their postpartum. We have to stop doing that. We can't blame the pregnancy on everything. Mm-hmm. We have to do our due diligence as, as sexual care providers. And I guarantee you, which I, I, 
Now, I could be way off base, but I'm probably not. Whichever doc towed that patient, th wait three months while she's peeing on herself, if it's a male, if their spouse was doing that, they would not tell their spouse to wait three months or their sister okay. or anybody else. And if, or if that was a female OBGYN and that was her, she would not be waiting mm -hmm. three months to figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you wouldn't do that for yourself as, as an obstetrical care provider, don't tell your patients to do it. Peeing on yourself is not normal. Mm -mm. No, immediately Never. postpartum. Immediate postpartum, immediate postpartum, those first few days, yes, it can be, especially if you had an epidural or you pushed on, yes. But after that, it shouldn't be happening. So we, we have to do better. Would you agree? I agree. A thousand <laughs> yeah, percent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we we got to stop telling everybody it's because they're pregnant because that's how things get missed. And that's why uh, mm -hmm. obstetrical care is where it is right now. And there is an issue with the trust factor issue between patients and physicians is because of that attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, other reasons, but a lot largely because of that. Okay. Question for you. Explain a DNC retained products of conception and potential for hemorrhage. So I think what they were asking, if I remember correctly, um, this person had a retained retain products of conception. So how does that happen after delivery and why? And then what does the DNC do? And, you know, the potential for hemorrhage for either of those. Retained products after an initial DNC or retained products after a, a normal delivery? Delivery, yeah. Oh, okay. So, yes, um, after um, we deliver the baby, then the placenta comes next. And so sometimes um, when taking the placenta out, there can be pieces of placenta left behind. And so um, it's not, it, it, it really is in the technique most times um, I've found. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely a way that we're taught to um, deliver the placenta. And so sometimes people will, you know, apply gentle traction. You know, I do. Some people are hands off, just wait for it to come out. But that does kind of take a little while. Um, but sometimes when you're having to manually go in, remove the placenta, or even sometimes, you know, um, the placenta can just like leave. Like if you, if anyone's ever seen, anyone who hasn't seen a placenta before, it looks like a disc, um, mm -hmm. like a meaty disc. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, there's like little cotyledons or like little sections on there. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes what can happen is everything detaches, but because it's adhered to the in, um to the uterus, and so sometimes there can be like a cotyledon or one of those little sections that I'm talking about that's stuck behind. So the rest of the placenta is coming off, and you're leaving pieces of that behind, or sometimes membranes or things like that. So yes, it can happen um, in a delivery. It can happen, um, you know, in a C-section or in a mm -hmm. vaginal delivery. Um, typically, a little bit more in a um, vaginal delivery. Yeah. And um, yeah, so if that happens, then sometimes what we're seeing is that it continues, we continue to see bleeding. And so um, you're going to have bleeding after delivery, regardless, but the bleeding is usually heavier, um, sometimes leading to like postpartum hemorrhage with a more significant blood loss. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you can do an ultrasound evaluation, mm -hmm. or if you're just seeing like chunks of it coming out and yeah. and things like that, and you think something's left behind, then sometimes your doctor will make a recommendation to go back for a DNC, which stands for dilation and curatage. So that's actually going back to the OR and, um, you know, suctioning out anything that may be left behind and also using like a sharp curette to like clean anything out that may be left behind. So, um, well, there's another question. With that. No, what so actually after delivery, the dilation part's not necessarily accurate. We use that still, but we don't have to dilate that's your true. cervix. You know, because the cervix is already open because you just had a baby. 
Um, so it's really a curatage, you would, or, you know, a suction curatage. Curatage means you're just going in either with an instrument to, to bring out those pieces and the clots and pieces of placenta or using a suction type of device to, to do that. But we really don't have to dilate the cervix because the cervix is already dilated. That's reserved for earlier on and someone whose cervix is not dilated and needs to have a DNC um, for whatever reason. Um, but I know, I, we still talk, call it that, but just to mm -hmm. be precise, that's what it is. So what was the other part, the other part, um, in the DNC, where that question go? Okay. Oh, uh, potential for hemorrhage. So yeah, and Dr. Cross already mentioned that. Leaving those pieces of placenta in, um, after delivery especially, the uterus is a muscle and it needs to contract down and become, even though it's still big, to get to where the sides are met and there's no more bleeding. The primary uh, way to control bleeding after delivery is by the uterus contracting down because it's a muscle. If there's something, a piece of that on the inside, it doesn't allow it to contract down and you could still bleed. So that's why I'm making sure that all the placenta comes out is important. Now, after a vaginal delivery, it happens more often because we're not seeing inside there. Whereas with the cesarean, we actually have the uterus open and we can go in and pull out the placenta and it's less likely with a cesarean, although it happens occasionally. Um, so, you know, uh, I'm very quick. I, I don't play. If I think there's retained products, I go back and I take a look and do a curatage under ultrasound guidance to make sure I got everything out. Mm -hmm. uh, I also have a, a higher risk patient population, so that's probably has something to do with it too. Um, but we have to, one of the things we do is we always examine the placenta afterwards. And then one of the other things is like, if there's an extra lobe, it's called a succinctrate lobe mm -hmm. where, where sometimes you can see it on, on ultrasound, sometimes you can't but you actually deliver the placenta, it looks okay. But what happened is there is a little other accessory lobe uh, or extra lobe that was there and it, that might've been left behind. So mm -hmm. I've seen that happen. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, this is gonna be the last question then we'll uh, answer a few here. This is gonna be a doozy. Let me see how you do. Cephalopelvic disproportion, what <laughs> is it? I know this is, sounds like something they would ask you on your oral boards, right? Right. <laughs> and you're just like, where do I start? So <laughs> yeah, let's talk a little bit about cephalopelvic disproportion. This, this uh, patient was diagnosed with it after her cesarean del delivery. So what say you? Yeah. So when it comes to CPD, um, it's, it's basically when, if you break down the word, you know, cephalo and pelvic. So it's really assessing the, the baby's head in relation in size in relation to the woman's pelvis and so if the head is thought to be bigger than the the pelvic inlet then sometimes um then that that's where you see that that term being used well you see it being used for more things than that but mm -hmm. um that's yeah. where it's kind of coming from and so it's basically saying that the head is not going to descend so normally you're contracting you're dilating the head is moving down coming through the um the canal and then able to deliver vaginally and so if you notice that someone's you know more advanced dilated um seven eight centimeters and the head's just not it's coming down yeah. then you get concerned that okay maybe is the shape of her pelvis um different where the head's not going to fit you know if you have like a, a heart-shaped pelvis and you have like a round head mm -hmm. and maybe it's it's more narrow because this part mm -hmm. here you know the head can't actually fit um in you know a normal um orientation but um so there's that and then also just the size of it and so cpd is kind of like an umbrella term to describe like you know um to describe where the head is too big to fit through the through the pelvis mm -hmm. sometimes it can also be the positioning of it so if like um, yeah. a baby's head is like asynclitic 
or sometimes if the presentation is different and baby's OP mm -hmm. or oxyput posterior, yeah. Yeah. sometimes that just doesn't line up. So when you think of, I always, when I describe it to patients, if they ask me, which is not as common now, but when they ask me about it, I always say like, you know, like when toddlers play with those little games, like with the little shapes and they have to put the little shapes, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. and it doesn't like, fit. Yeah, it doesn't fit. It's like you mm -hmm. can't put the square one in the heart. And so it's really trying to match that up. But, you know, they used to, back in the day, they used to think that pelvimetry or, you know, using all these different, you know, techniques and ultrasounds and reality and all these different things to be able to determine, hey, is this baby going to fit? It didn't actually really match up mm -hmm. if someone was going to be successful or not with mm -hmm. a vaginal delivery. So we mm -hmm. actually stopped doing it. Well, most of us um, stopped doing it. And so... Mm -hmm there's really um, no need for like this extensive, like I give everybody a chance um, yes. unless mm -hmm. there's one of those contraindications that, you know, we yeah. know about from a dystocia standpoint, but um, I give everybody a chance because there's no way that even if somebody has a, a baby has a big head, baby has, mm -hmm. you know, baby's larger, baby's macrosomic or it's still maybe able to fit. And so I think giving it a chance. And so that's what CPD is. And sometimes it can be used as an umbrella term, just to say like, hey, your baby's not going to fit out, let's do a C-section. And whether that's right or wrong, um, well, I'm just going to be honest, that, that's, that's not correct. <laughs> so no. just jump to that diagnosis. And, a lot of, and I see it happen a lot because the patient themselves are small. That's still not fair to say, mm -hmm. oh, you're only four foot 11. There's no way you're going to deliver vaginally. That's not fair either. Everybody deserves yeah. a chance. Um, we do not offer just because we do our exam and your pelvis is this and that you have to have a C-section. You can't even try a vaginal delivery and, and you use the CPD diagnosis as a reason to do that. That should not be being done. Everybody mm -hmm. should get it, have a chance. And basically the CPD diagnosis comes for a pro, from a prolonged second stage of labor. And that's where you're going from zero centimeters, uh, to, to pushing, uh, and, and that, or, Push, trying to push the baby out. And a lot of times what you might see, if, for those of you that ended up going for a C-section, when the baby came out, there might be a weird cone that the baby, you could tell the baby was stuck mm -hmm. in a vaginal vault a, a weird way. Um, then you can kind of tell the baby wasn't in there the right way. So, mm -hmm. you know, that can be an indication that there was some CPD going on as well. Um, that was a great explanation. I think I would have passed you on oral boards. <laughs> Thank you. No, great explanation. Uh, okay, so let's go sit. Few, give me five minutes to answer some questions. See if there's anybody, anything here that we can answer. I know there's a lot. Uh, we'll answer questions for five minutes. Sure. Mm. Okay, we're, we're, I'm not going to answer any IVF questions. Sorry. We, okay, 22 weeks pregnant. Can you tell me about the booster? We already touched on that. Mm -hmm. Ten weeks with the number five stick. Is it odd? Nothing seems to be helping. Okay. Um, all right, okay, so ten weeks with the number five stick. Is it odd? Nothing seems to be helping. Uh, I'm guessing you're saying that it's nausea involving a pregnancy, potentially hyperemesis gravidarum. That, uh, you know, the whole thing with nausea and vomiting and not being able to keep down, that's another thing that I feel that sometimes we dismiss. There are medications that can be given to help that. Um, it may not make it can go completely away, um, but there are things that we can, we can do. Um, sometimes I feel that's another thing. Oh, you're pregnant. You're going to be sick. But if you cannot function and it's affecting your quality of life and you're not able to keep, that, keep them down, keep anything down, that is not normal. And we need to, you need to be treated. Um, 
That's my thoughts on that. Agreed, for sure. Okay. Uh, question regarding 36-week die-dye twins, any benefit to getting steroids? We don't give twins past or, uh, give uh, that uh, even for the ALPS trial just because it's twins. So no. So how was that your, would that be your answer for the steroids yeah. and die-dye twins? Yeah. Absolutely. What have you heard about Lovenox for helping prevent recurring loss? I've had three miscarriages and all normal testing. Um, recurrent pregnancy and uh, loss in the absence of a, a thrombophilia, and usually that's going to be in the form of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. There is no indication to be giving blood thinners. Um, that needs to be recurrent pregnancy loss with other things going on. Um, so I don't, I hope that answers your question. Um, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that's perfect. If you tested yeah. negative for everything, there's no need to start on Lovenox. Mm -hmm. I had a uterine rupture on an unscarred uterus. Am I at higher risk for another rupture? And you actually talked about that. The answer is yes. Anytime you've had a uterine rupture, no matter what, it, what the reason, if it's a primary uterine rupture or um, after having had a cesarean, we, you are at increased risk for rupture. Um, but I've seen primary uterine ruptures. Um, what about you? Have you had any of those? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in, in residency. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that might be it. Oh, well, we'll do this last one. Dr. Cross, how is HPV transmitted? Well, HPV um, is typically transmit, it's transmitted sexually. So mm -hmm. through sexual acts, uh, which is not limited to just like, you know, um, vaginal um, intercourse, but any type of like oral sex, um, mm -hmm. skin to, certain skin to skin contact, close intimate touch, but um, it is considered a sexually transmitted disease. Yeah. Um, so, and there is an HPV vaccine. It has been shown to have been very defect, uh, effective at decreasing. Uh, when is that given? Do you know? I don't, it's given in teens. My, my nephew's 13 and is, and is eligible. But I don't remember exactly when they start giving it. Do you remember? Nine to 26. Nine to 26. Um, for, for boys and girls. So it's not just boys girls, and girls, but yeah, boys and girls. Yeah. Boys and girls. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's FDA approved up to 45. But um, mm. all the insurances haven't hopped on board yet at covering it. Yet. Yeah, I, I got, I got it. I'm trying to think of when I got it. I got it when I was like 30, 31. Mm -hmm. uh, and my insurance didn't cover it. I just paid for it. And that's what it was coming about. Yeah, I paid out of pocket. Okay. Well, this is awesome. A great yes. Q&A session. We'll have to do this again. For and sure. you're just down the road it. in Pearland. So enjoy the rest of your weekend. Um, thank, thank you, thank you, you so too. much, Dr. Tamika Cross. And what is your Instagram handle? It's at T-Cross, T-C-R-O-S-S -S underscore M-B. Okay. And I'll put that in the caption here. So make sure you go follow Dr. Cross. Tons of great information. And she's a fellow Houstonian, so you know she's pretty <laughs> awesome. So thank you so much for your time and have a great weekend. Thanks for having me. Have a good weekend. Bye. Bye.